Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. I'm John Moorhead. I'm the host of the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast, and today... I'm privileged to have as a guest, Chen Zing Han, and she's the author of a new book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists, and I found uh, her bio on the website. I'll read that to introduce her a little bit, and if she's got something else, she can add to that. Uh, Chen Zing Han is a Bay Area-based writer whose publications have appeared in Buddha Dharma, Journal of Global Buddhism, Lion's Roar, Roar Pacific World, Tricycle, and elsewhere. She holds a BA from Stanford University and an MA in Buddhist Studies from the Graduate Theological Union. After studying chaplaincy at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California, she worked in spiritual care at a nearby community hospital hospital in Oakland. And uh, Chen Zing, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here. Do you have anything else you'd like to add to the bio? Anything else uh, we should know about you? Um, I suppose it might come out in the course of our conversation, so let's just dive in. Okay, we'll go ahead and do that. I like to begin when I have folks on the program just to kind of get their story so we can kind of personalize it a bit. What was your experience of Buddhism growing up? Uh, Well, very little, I guess, because I was raised in a non-religious household. Mm. So I was born in Shanghai in China and came to the U.S. when I was four. And like many people of their generation who lived through the Cultural Revolution, my parents are atheists. And I'd say that when I was younger, I think I was always intrigued by questions of spirituality and religion. And really, you know, I think these spiritual journeys of ours, one of my interviewees put it this way, you kind of connect the dots in retrospect. So I often think that they're multi-stranded and there's many different braids that we can follow. So one of the strands was certainly that I took a gap year between high school and college and spent much of that time in Asia and spent some time teaching, volunteering in China, but also traveled through Thailand, Nepal, Tibet. And so I was actually seeing Buddhism practice there in many different forms. And it sort of roused my curiosity. And then in college, that's when I really came out to the Bay Area. So I lived first, you know, when I was younger in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and also Washington State, actually, and came out to the Bay really for college, where my parents are now. And it was really here in the Bay, there's so many different types of Buddhism. And I started to explore more both reading and then actually visiting different communities. And it helped that, you know, there was a Buddhist community at Stanford, where I was at. um, And the person who was you know, one of the, I guess, co-president, president of the community ended up, you know, becoming my husband eventually. So he and I have been in partnership together, you know, as Buddhists as well. And he also was not raised Buddhist. So he's, um, yeah, born and raised in the Bay Area and came to Buddhism earlier than me as a teenager. And so there's just all of these different strands. And I often liken my encounter with Buddhism a bit like putting 
you know, a tea bag and water. And so gradually that water starts to take on the flavor of the tea. And it's hard for me to pinpoint an exact conversion moment, but I would just say the more I explored, the more I got to know more different types of Buddhism and different Buddhist friends, as well as Buddhist scholars, Buddhism just started to kind of permeate my life in different facets. And so I would say that my childhood self or my teenage self would be quite shocked to see where I ended up. Maybe not displeased, but certainly very shocked, you know, to know that I had gone on to do a master's in Buddhist studies and Buddhist chaplaincy. Um, I think when I was younger, I didn't even know what the word chaplaincy even meant. You probably could have just made up a definition and I would have have just believed you. And so it's been a very sort of wending um, spiritual journey, if you will. Interesting. It's interesting that you had uh, basically an atheist background. Would you describe that as th there's different kinds of atheists as there are different kinds of religious practitioners? What was it kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, hard-nosed and militant? Was it kind of passive? And uh, I'm just wondering how your particular understanding and, and living out of atheism lent itself eventually to adopting a Buddhist pathway? I think that I grew up with kind of a suspicion of religion okay. and kind of seeing them as maybe cults. And I think, again, going back to the cultural revolution, the kind of, you know, I think my parents, the way they saw the cult of Mao rise and the kind of effects of that mm. um, in China kind of implanted itself in me. And so I think that played out as a lot of prejudice actually on my part. So again, sort of all religions in general. And I think it was only as I got, you know, in college and a bit older, it's, I realized like that was actually a very narrow-minded way of perceiving other people, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Buddhist, you know, really of any faith. Um, I often, in the book, I write a little bit about my time in South Africa. I studied there in my junior year of college and I was actually doing interviews, you know, so I wasn't studying religion at the time and I was in an interdisciplinary major. So I was interviewing people at different nonprofits, actually about cell phones. So really nothing to do with religion, but most of the people I talked to were actually Christian and something that really struck me was the way that their faith grounded their social justice work. And for me personally, Christianity has just never really resonated. You know, I know it's the dominant religion in this country. Um, I've had various exposures to it. It's almost impossible not to going to public schools in America, or I think I went to a Christian summer camp very briefly at one point because my parents just needed to find childcare. And so, you know, I think that people have different affinities is, is how I would put it for different religions. And I think it was once I started discovering Buddhism, I hear many people say this, they feel a sense of coming home. And I think some people might feel precisely that way for Christianity or, you know, other religions as well. And so for me, it's been, you know, many things, but really a source of a lot of both grounding, I think, and inspiration and just a very positive force in my life. Thank you for being willing to, to share some of that personal journey. I, I appreciate that. And I think listeners and viewers will as well. Um, you're going to bring an interesting perspective uh, that you write about in your book. Previously, I've had uh, George Draffin on who heads up the Northwest Dharma Association, in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm sure his experience is different than yours. And I'm looking forward to how those two might complement each other. What experiences and concerns did you have about American Buddhism or maybe even beyond American Buddhism that led you to write the book? Yeah, so, you know, here I was in college and I was going to, for example, some predominantly white convert Buddhist centers. That's, I guess, how we would describe them, meditation centers. And I kind of felt like I stuck out because I wasn't a baby boomer right here. I am in my 20s. And then also 
I stuck out because I wasn't white. And at that time, about 15 years ago, a lot of these centers were predominantly white. And so it just kind of raised this question for me, like, oh, like where are the other Asian American Buddhists or the people of color Buddhists more broadly? And then I would also spend time at what we might call immigrant temples, you know, temples where people were predominantly Vietnamese or Cambodian or Chinese and often the predominant language was not English and so my partner and I would go and he's this tall white guy and you know I'm a visibly Asian person and um, there I would see so I wouldn't at least stand out racially there my partner really stood out more but I did also notice like oh there weren't a lot of other young adults maybe you'd see like grandmas mostly and then also like grandkids and sometimes like aunties and moms but not so many young adults so again I came up with this question of just where are all the young adult Asian American Buddhists? So I say sometimes that this book came from a place of some loneliness and confusion, but also mm. very much curiosity. And so I decided by that point, you know, through a kind of wending set of circumstances, I'd landed in a basically an MDiv equivalent program in Buddhist studies and Buddhist chaplaincy at the Graduate Theological Union and Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley. And I needed a thesis topic. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll just try to interview some people who loosely identify as, let's say, young adult, you know, 20s and 30s, roughly, maybe, and loosely identify as Buddhist, like, it didn't matter to me so much that they'd be like card carrying Buddhists, just if they had some kind of affinity or connection to Buddhism, and then people who were of partial or full Asian heritage. So you can tell I set these parameters kind of loosely because I wasn't so much interested in like militantly defining what an Asian American Buddhist was. I wanted to explore this category because it hadn't been used very much. You know, I hear about Asian American Christians and especially Asian American evangelical Christians as a kind of community. And there's something coherent about that. And there's a lot of books about that. But Asian American Buddhists as a pan-ethnic and pan-sectarian category, there wasn't as much written about that. And someone I'm deeply grateful for writing about this topic was actually someone named Aaron Lee who wrote this blog called The Angry Asian Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And so that title itself would just get people to just sit up because it's <laughs> such a, you know, it so defies our stereotype of what Asian Americans are, but also what Buddhists are angry. No, you can't be that. And he was one of the, I don't know, I want to say, I want to say he was one of the first people, first millennials to be really writing about Asian American Buddhists. And his point was, okay, we know from the Pew Forum, from this 2012 study that Buddhists are very much a minority in this country, maybe only about 1%. But of those, two thirds are of Asian heritage. So the majority of Buddhists are of Asian heritage. But then when you look at these more mainstream Buddhist magazines, the face of Buddhism in America is often white converts. And so for me, there was also that dissonance was also part of the picture, kind of knowing there are these statistics, but feeling like the voices that speak for American Buddhism in scholarship and in the popular media are often, frankly, white and older and often male as well. And so for someone like myself, Asian American, as a lay person, as a woman, it also felt important just to try to understand, so what else is out there in this landscape? These voices that are not as visible, these voices that I think in many ways are doubly marginalized by virtue of both their race and also their religion. And so that's how I embarked on the interviews that eventually many years later led into this book coming into being. Now, when you read that book, um, did that give you a sense of anger too, or, or if not, at least a sense of frustration? What, what were some of the feelings that you that were associated with it? 
Oh yeah. So to be clear, it's a blog called the angry Asian okay, Buddhist okay. that he wrote for many years. And I think the first time I read it, I actually felt a sense of relief that hmm. someone was talking about these issues because really what he was talking about was the issues of race and representation in American Buddhism. And I'd actually encountered this in, especially some, you know, convert meditation centers. There was kind of this feeling like, oh, race, like that's not really, you know, something we should talk about here. That's a very divisive topic or that's inflammatory. That's not really Buddhist. Like you're bringing in cultural or racial baggage. So hearing that kind of rhetoric and was, well, confusing, I think, and uncomfortable, because I think there's also Buddhist teachings about wanting to alleviate people's suffering. And I think, as has become very evident, if it wasn't already clear to people, you know, race can be, a, or the I should say, the ways people are racialized can be a source of suffering for people. And so to ignore that or sweep it under the rug or say, oh, we're all the same, you know, it doesn't matter what color our skin is, I think that actually avoid some hard but necessary truths that we need to dig into. So for me, there was a sense of, oh my goodness, there's a person finally out there talking about these issues. And it took a lot of courage. He wrote under a pseudonym because he would get hate mail. He would get hate mail from white supremacists. He would get hate mail even just from, yeah. And if not hate mail, like quite a lot of flack people who would say, oh, you're not a real Buddhist. How can you bring up these issues? And in some ways, I think because I saw that he was getting you know, these sorts of responses, I felt actually this is an important topic. Often when there's this kind of pushback, we actually know we've touched a nerve and that there's more there. I will admit that I also felt a little bit nervous wading into this space. I didn't ever really intend to write about race and religion in this way. It really came from, again, quite a personal place of really just wanting to connect with other people and asking them, what was your story like? And maybe finding points of resonance in our story as well as points of difference and just trying to see how we might build a sense of friendship or solidarity or kinship together. And I should add that the Angry Asian Buddhist blog, I think, did those things as well. There were many people, not just people who are of Asian heritage, you know, Buddhists of different racial backgrounds who said, yes, I'm so glad this voice Voice exists because he is pointing out some dynamics that are difficult and uncomfortable in our communities. Mm. I know having uh, worked on my master's degree many more years ago than you worked on yours, uh, uh, that it's a very intentional process that you have to go through. What was what kind of research process did you go through to find the voices that you have in your book? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of figuring out the parameters of who I wanted to interview, the IRB, the kind of ethics board approval, all of that coming up with the interview questions. And I have the interview questions in the back of the book and people will see that it was a very long set of questions because I felt quite greedy, not a not a Buddhist virtue, but I was very greedy to learn more about people because I figured, okay, if I can get these people to talk with me, I just want to learn more about their Buddhist background and what their practice is like. And, you know, what are their thoughts on some of these issues of representation? in American Buddhism. I think there were like seven sections to the interview. And I ended up getting, I thought I'd get a handful of people, but I ended, ended up having maybe, I think it was 26 people in person. I mostly interviewed them in the Bay Area, um, 22 in the Bay Area, four in Southern California. And then actually an additional 63 people by email because I couldn't meet all of these people in person. They weren't all in the Bay Area. I didn't have this kind of funding. And so the email interviews actually happened after I'd written my master's thesis and wading through these, you know, 26 in-person interviews, I transcribing all of them, I got carpal tunnel in the process, because there was so much material. These interviews lasted between one and a half and five and a half hours long. People had a lot to say. And I again, felt like, oh, I've 
touch really this is just the tip of the iceberg and I kind of felt hmm well if this all just ends up in a master's thesis that frankly no one is ever going to read it seemed a bit like a pity um, and I also felt kind of just a what's the word maybe a responsibility to the people I interviewed and also, I think just the sense of friendship of like, you know, if you meet friends and they tell you these and trust you with stories and say, I would like to meet more Asian American Buddhists, or I would like people to see the complexity and diversity of our experiences, I kind of felt that was a gift to me. And so it felt important to give a gift back to these people, to this community, to show these voices in a way that did as much justice to them as possible, wove them together. And perhaps the hardest part of the process was realizing at some point I needed to weave more of my own story that I couldn't just like hide behind the screen of scholarly objectivity that I would need to tell more of my own story. And so that also is woven into this book. Well, it sounds like not only did you have some academic rigor, but it sounds like you had fun along the way. So <laughs> that's always good. It's always good to be passionate about your project. So you know, you've mentioned it in uh, this conversation here in our podcast, and it's in the book, when you talk about two-thirds of uh, Buddhists in the U.S. are Asian Americans, and yet the public face many times of American Buddhism is white. Um, any thoughts on, was this a part of your research process or any thoughts as a result of how this came to be? Is it just part of the general racial assumption of the United States or what's going on there? I think there's many different reasons. You know, I think in media in general, it's predominantly white, or if we look at book publishing, right, if editors are 80 to 90% white, that's going to reflect in who the um, who the writers are, who gets published, that kind of thing. But thinking specifically about Buddhism, you know, I know George, I listened to your podcast with him, talked about how Buddhism has been in this country, you know, 150 years, basically, um, since the 19th century, how Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans practice different forms of Buddhism, and particularly the Shin Buddhist community, the Jodo Shinshu community, that began as Japanese American, and still is predominantly Japanese American, but this is a group that's rapidly diversifying because of intermarriage. I, I think of that as a very early form, one of our earliest forms of American Buddhism, one of our oldest forms. And if we say they're not American Buddhism, I would I would challenge that. I mean, are, are we making an assumption that American only means white, right? They've been in this, they've been Buddhist in this generation, four or five, six generations now. So I call them multi-generation American Buddhists. And I think for myriad reasons, you know, historical, that this is a group that was interned, that was incarcerated during World War II. I mean, literally erased from the landscape of many neighborhoods. I think and one can imagine the trauma that occurs after that and the kind of message it sends um, to people who are, again, racial and religious minorities. So I think there's there's this there's these historical pieces. I think that more and more people are looking into, and I'm so grateful that that research is coming out more. Um, Duncan Rukin Williams' book American Sutra is a phenomenal read that really looks at the history of Buddhists, Japanese American Buddhists during the World War II era, and I highly recommend it. So I think we can tease out these reasons of, yeah, frankly, racism and xenophobia and ostracization. And it's not just because they were, Jap you know, I think, I think what Duncan does a great job of in his book is reminding us the first people to be arrested were Buddhist priests. 
not the Christian ministers who were Japanese Americans, but the Buddhist priests. So they were seen as even more of a threat because of their kind of foreign or heathen religion. So I think that's a part of it. And I think that, you know, I notice sometimes tropes, if we think about post 1965, the large waves of immigration from various Asian countries, and some of these places are predominantly Buddhist. So like Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, there are many Buddhists in Vietnam, for example, or Taiwan, who've come over. Um, if we look at these communities, I think sometimes there's a sense like, oh, they're just an ethnic enclaves or, you know, it's not very diverse or they're kind of like superstitious immigrants. They're just like bowing at these statues or altars. So there's kind of this like dismissive language, what I'd call this like superstitious immigrant trope. So that's not particularly sexy. And I think that, you know, media wants to see what's trending and, you know, what's interesting. Um, and I think in the 1960s and 70s, the beat generation, Zen Buddhism, you know, Tibetan Buddhists coming over, I think there's this narrative of this kind of white convert and who maybe learns from an Asian master, but maybe they improve this form of meditation. They bring it into the 21st century. I mean, I'm saying all this, right, like a little bit tongue in cheek or with air quotes, but these are all things I've read. These are all rhetorics I've read. And but if I take a pause and I think about the Shin Buddhist community, or I think about people who are second, third generation Asian American Buddhists in this country, and even people like myself who are convert Buddhists, it's very painful to see the Asian roots and Asian culture of Buddhism, of Buddhist communities kind of erased, thrown to the side like this. So it's a, yeah, there's, <laughs> I think there are many, many reasons, probably more than we can get into in this span of our conversation, more than I myself can fully see, but I think shining a light on this issue, which, you know, it's not just me who's doing this. I think people have actually been doing this for decades, but now in the context of Black Lives Matter, in the context of more awareness around anti-Asian hatred or violence, I think now I notice a kind of shift in the American Buddhist community. People are more willing and I think more realize the necessity of talking about these issues as uncomfortable as they are. I don't know if you've given any thought to this, but just as I hear you speak, it makes sense that most religious communities are just kind of worried about their own community, getting through their day-to-day -day lives and, and drawing upon their tradition to help them to be, be better people and relate to each other. But do you have any sense whether the demographic that you did research in, maybe younger uh, Asian Buddhists have more of an interest in reaching out across religious lines than maybe previous generations have? Any thoughts on that multi-faith or interfaith angle? I think it, yeah, multiple thoughts actually. Like what first thought that comes to mind is it's almost a necessity when you're such a minority, right? Maybe in Thailand, if you're Thai Buddhist, you wouldn't necessarily think of connecting with Vietnamese Buddhists because there wouldn't be very many. But I think in America, in some places, you're really rubbing shoulders with lots of different types of Buddhists. And I think even just within the American Buddhist community, we're still just getting to know each other because there are so many different, you could almost say fragmented. I would say that, you know, we've been isolated for from each other sometimes for different reasons, whether reasons of geography or differences of language, even within a certain temple, the second generation, for example, might not feel as connected to Buddhism as their parents and grandparents do. Let's say someone is Cambodian American or Laotian American, if there's a language barrier, if they don't fully really understand, you know, the kind of Buddhism their parents grew up with. And so I think quite naturally people might start to either explore other forms of Buddhism, including, you know, places where maybe the majority of people don't look like themselves, where 
where the meditation practice may be, you know, where maybe there is a meditation practice, a seated meditation practice, and the temple might have more emphasized chanting or generosity or ethics, other types of practices. And then I think for many of my interviewees in college, because it's such a time of exploring identity, including I think racial and religious identity, I think many people went to Christian fellowships partly because that's dominant and that's what's there to explore. And I suspect many people actually convert to Christianity, but those aren't the people obviously who spoke to me for my book since you know that would have been outside of the parameters of my book. Although I think that would be a really interesting and necessary book to talk to people maybe who grew up Buddhist, but you know decided to convert into another faith. And then I would also add, so I think I should probably back up for one minute and let people who haven't read the book know that the book has four parts. And so the first part is really focused on my interviewees who I call multi-gen American Buddhists, so the predominantly Japanese American Shin Buddhists. And the second part of my book, I focus on the experiences of second gen American Buddhists, second gen Asian American Buddhists. So people whose parents raised them Buddhist in this country. And so they're kind of the second generation. And this is a very wide range of ethnicities from you know Tibetan to Thai, Lao, Cambodian, Burmese, et cetera. And then the third part of my book, I call, um, I call them actually first gen Buddhists, first gen American Buddhists, because they're kind of the first generation in their family to be Buddhist. And so um, I actually got this idea from one of my interviewees who's Filipino American and grew up Catholic and talks about himself as this kind of first gen Buddhist. And finally, in part four of my book, um, which I call Refuge Makers, actually, I weave together these previous three parts, voices from all of these parts. And so I mentioned these four parts because I wanted to highlight part three that which I call integrators um, or first-gen Buddhists. The reason I actually labeled this part integrators is because many of these interviewees were actually integrating different religions that they grew up with. So they actually already grew up in multi-faith households. I think many Buddhists also marry, you know, they don't necessarily marry another Buddhist. And so I think, again, your question, I think, brings me to, if you don't have like a huge strength in numbers, if one is already in a kind of more minority position, it almost becomes more necessary to understand the dominant culture. I mean, I remember that growing up, just people would toss aside references very casually and I would not know like this biblical story they're talking about. And so there's kind of like this, okay, I need to learn about Christianity. And in some ways, you know, one can think of that as a kind of disadvantage or it's frustrating, but I think the other side of the coin is it's kind of a privilege. I think we kind of learn to move through different spaces. We learn to code switch, for example, in different places, you know, I said the Pledge of Allegiance at school, right? Because, and God is in there, right? And I would learn these certain stories. Did people have to know what the Vasanta Rajataka is? No, right? That wouldn't necessarily, that's, that's not important in this culture, right? But of course, if you're in Thailand, like everyone knows what the Vasanta Rajataka is. And that's the dominant, you know, Buddhist religion. So if you're a Catholic in Thailand, I suspect you still know what the Vasanta Rajataka is. So like the frames of reference are different, but, that was a very long answer to your very interesting question, I think, about these questions of interfaith and multi-faith connections. Yeah, one of the reasons I ask is a colleague of mine, Paul Lewis Metzger at Multnomah University in Portland, has been involved with, he and his students have been a part of these uh, hospitality uh, dinners and conversations with members of the Dharma Rain Zen Center in Portland for many years. And uh, we're always looking for additional Buddhist conversation partners uh, across the United States. So if we can ever uh, help facilitate that, I was just wondering, you know, what sense there might be uh, of interest in that as folks continue. 
Now, you mentioned um, some of the uh, parts to your book, the categories. I wonder if we could dive into that just a little bit more deeply. You've got trailblazers, bridge builders, integrators, and refuge makers. Can you tell us a little bit more about how each of those sections are defined and maybe a, a, just a little quick summary or story about who would represent those categories? Hopefully that's not too much for you. <laughs> sure. So trailblazers, what I call multi-gen Buddhists again, you know, I think of them because they've been in this country for so long. So their grandparents, their great grandparents were American Buddhist or trailblazers, I'd say. But I also feel these youth are themselves trailblazing. And so um, if I recently did a half-day retreat, online retreat, with a group called the Young Buddhist Editorial, made up of, I think, predominantly Gen Z, a little bit younger than me, Gen Z Buddhists. And I was just really blown away by, you know, their organization, their kind of openness to wanting to connect with people, not just of their own Shin Buddhist background, but from different Buddhist backgrounds and non-Buddhist backgrounds. You know, we had people who weren't Buddhist come to this retreat. Um, and yeah, I see them taking their Buddhism and connecting it to issues of social justice or environmental justice, these issues that feel very pressing for the times and in this day. And so I think of them as trailblazers who are deeply respectful of their elders and also forging a new path. And then part two, Bridge Builders, um, is focused on, again, as I said, the second gen Buddhists. So this is a really very ethnically diverse group of interviewees. and. Each of the parts actually has three chapters. So there's a kind of arc in each of these parts. And the arc of this one, you know, chapter four is called Gaps. Chapter five is called Reclamation. Chapter six is called Compassion. And all of these parts really came from, you know, I, I didn't know what form this book would take before I wrote it. It just came from really listening deeply to the interviews and reviewing them over and over and thinking about what themes emerged, kind of a very grassroots bottom-up approach. And so there are these real gaps of, again, language, culture between these Buddhists and their parents, their grandparents. But then I also see them kind of reclaiming Buddhism on their own terms in young adulthood as they come to terms with it, whether that might mean weaving in some different other sects of Buddhism or other Buddhist practices, or yeah, it might mean exploring other religions and use, and through that process, trying to clarify their own relationship to Buddhism. And I end on this note of compassion because for many of them, I think it was really, for me, very heartwarming to see the ways in which they might've started out actually, I think, imbibing and internalizing some of these narratives, like, oh, my parents are superstitious. They're just doing this weird stuff. Like that's embarrassing. Or, you know, I think these messages get internalized and then coming through gradually exploring religion for themselves and realizing, okay, I may not be the same as my parents, but I can have understanding and compassion for the ways that they relate to Buddhism and actually find some common ground. And so I see them like building these bridges, right, with their parents, their grandparents, but also with this broader culture that has so many misperceptions and negative stereotypes, particularly of, I would say, Asian American Buddhists. And then part three, integrators. Um, I Yeah, again, I thought about these people integrating so many things, whether it's different religions, and many of them were actually multi-ethnic or multi-racial in this category, many of these kind of first-gen or convert Buddhists. And so, um, gosh, I guess I talk about myself in that chapter, along with, again, many dozens of other stories and other voices. And this is probably the part of my book where I'm the most honest with what my own journey is, including some of the discomfort of being in predominantly white convert sanghas and just 
wondering, you know, where are people who can share and understand more of my own experience? And I think something that's interesting for us is that, you know, we can't, we didn't have the privilege of being immersed in a kind of Buddhist culture or Buddhist family, Buddhist temples growing up. And so there's both, I think many of us end up have, you know, I think, what's the word, maybe visiting or exploring many different types of Buddhism and then having to almost like excavate some roots. Like through this process of writing this book, I actually found out my great-grandmother was Buddhist and I didn't know that like this whole time growing up. And so there's these sort of discoveries we make and it's again like this kind of grappling with what do we make of this like identity in the making, this category in the making? What does it mean to be Asian American Buddhist? It's a complicated beast. And I think we are still figuring this out. Um, and so in part four of the book, I think, which was really one of my favorite parts to write, it's called Refuge Makers. And that title is inspired by Aaron, the um, blogger of the Angry Asian Buddhist, whose very last blog post was called Be the Refuge, which is the title of my book. So Aaron very sadly passed away of cancer in 2017 at the age of 34. In many ways, this book is a tribute to him and his legacy. He was just someone who has also very complicated uh, story in terms of being his own relationship to Buddhism. He was half Toysanese Chinese, half Ashkenazi Jewish. You know, one of his grandmothers was Buddhist or had done Buddhist chanting and kind of exposed him to that, but he grew up Jewish and, you know, multiracial in this country. And so to me, it's just like the ways that he would just go to different Buddhist communities and learn about them, like make friends with Shin Buddhists, make friends with Vietnamese Buddhists, just make friends with everyone and be really open, even if their primary practice wasn't the same as his. So his primary practice was seated meditation, but he was just very open about visiting different Buddhists and really envisioning a Buddhist community where we can connect across ethnic and racial lines, where we can connect across differences of sect. And so Refuge Makers really brings again all the voices in the book together and examines some of the issues of power, privilege, race, representation, these kinds of issues that were really coming up for us as young adults. Thank you. That was a big question and it required a big answer. So yes. I so, uh, one final question, unless you've got something else that I've missed here. You've, you, through your research and your book and your conversations, you've identified some problems and you've given voice to, to address some of these problems and the deficit that's there. On this side of the journey, how would you like to see American Buddhists represented? And what's the, what's the solution? What are the facets of what needs to be done to correct the, the challenges that you've found? Yeah, I think of one of my interviews saying, I'd like to be represented as we are as a diverse group of people and as humans so neither overly romanticized nor denigrated and I think that a lot of that has to do with um, telling our stories and I think that can be really hard to tell our stories I think in a public way because there's just barriers of time or you know where do we publish our stories but I think often even starting very simply and like telling one story to another person who can listen. So this is kind of my chaplaincy training coming in. I would say chaplaincy really very much informed this book. You know, I kind of felt like this book just came out of me having tea with some people <laughs> and telling each other our stories and just listening wholeheartedly. And I think that, you know, it would shock me that some people would have friends, childhood friends who are Buddhist and they didn't find out like the other person was Buddhist until, you know, for a decade or sometimes more, they kind of like hit that. And so my hope is that there's really these 
I think true stories is really told from within the community, people listening and people taking a moment and realizing, oh, you know, maybe some of my beliefs around Buddhism or stereotypes around Buddhism weren't accurate. And I think then we adjust accordingly. We say like, oh yeah, that time I said American Buddhism started in the 1960s, I was wrong about that, right? And so we kind of graciously, you know, we all make mistakes, people are human, so we do that. And so I think for me, it's all about relationships and it's all about lowering the barrier to relationships. So in other words, like trying to push back against some of these stereotypes, which I think their most pernicious effect is that they create shame in people and they create a sense of people not wanting to share their Buddhism. And so how can we lower these barriers and how can we then start to form these connections of friendship? How can we have tea together? Well, hopefully this, your conversation here will be one small, very small contribution to making that happen. But I, I appreciate uh, your time and flexibility. We had to do a little rescheduling to get you on here, but uh, I'm so glad it worked out. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you so much, John. It's really been a pleasure. My guest today has been Chenzing Han, and she is the author of Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. And you can find a link to that volume and to her website in the podcast episode notes. And I would encourage everyone who's listening and watching to pick up a copy and get to know another perspective on America's Buddhist community. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in and listening or watching this episode until the next episode of Multi-Faith Maps. <laughs>